Welcome to the EggerSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. And with that, uh, we understood the balance of running a farm, working, and uh, balancing uh, the any input that we would have on health issues uh, out there with our livestock. And for Lyme disease, this is an area that we hope that the agricultural environment, farmers of America uh, will also be part of in our quest to know more about Lyme disease. Uh, on the next slide, what uh, I will do is tell you just a little bit more about what is Lyme disease. And that slide tells us that we all know it's a bacteria. And with this bacteria, if it's not treated early, it can worsen and it can debilitate, not just humans, but even animals. So the longer we wait uh, is not a good thing. Lyme disease symptoms have now become even so similar to other illnesses. Uh, and so the patient that comes to the office of a doctor or nurse practitioner or whatever, uh, we have to look at what those differential diagnoses are. But the diagnosis is challenging. And so usually the first and foremost is that we do Lyme um, assessment. We do a good history and we do that history so that we know the patient's past exposure to tick uh, and symptoms. And the next uh, is if they even come in with a uh, bullseye rash and even a tick in their Ziploc bag, it's important for us to know that if we go ahead with the testing and the testing comes back negative, that uh, that is not um, unusual because it is an indirect test. It doesn't give us uh, a direct anti uh, antibody kind of reaction because in order to get any antibody reaction, it takes about two weeks. So it's important for us to tell our patients that um, we may not see it, but we may need to treat you. Um, the FDA does not at this time approve any direct diagnostic test that would measure active bacterial infection by detecting the presence or absence of the Lyme disease bacteria in the human body. On the next slide, it actually gives you the look at of the stages of ticks. And with that, most ticks go through four life stages of six. And actually, there's not all the stages here, but if you can see, we have the egg, uh, the larvae, the nymph, and the adult. Um, after hatching from the egg, the tick must eat blood at every stage uh, to survive. So the ticks require uh, many hosts uh, that can take up to three years actually to complete their full life cycle. Most will die because they won't even reach that. If we can go on to the next slide. And on the next slide, we would see the, uh, the overview that actually CDC puts out. And it does tell about what their estimates are. Their estimates are ranging from the 400s to the 500,000s of an increase in the um, 
presence of Lyme disease. And it's noted that the, the CDC usually gets up to 30 to 40,000 reports of Lyme disease every year. But they also recognize that really may not be the correct number. There might be many more. Uh, and that's where uh, not only CDC and NIH, but uh, state health organizations are trying to work uh, better in. And we know that uh, the Lyme disease is considered the great imitator, and it's essentially one of the most in, uh, misunderstood and widely growing illness in not only our country, but from all over the world, because the symptoms can relate to other diseases. And uh, Lyme disease is generally misinterpreted um, in different areas. It could be with those uh, specialists in cardiology, uh, those in neurology, in psychology. So the multidisciplinary look at of this is so, so important to do differential diagnosis. And I will cover that a little later. But what some people are diagnosed with uh, may not be that diagnosis. Right now, they're looking at even the similar symptoms that we see in Parkinson's. Is it Parkinson's or is it Lyme disease? Is it MS or Lyme disease? And the next slide is actually giving you a look at of the, uh, probably one of, I, I believe, one of the most graphic uh, set up in the cycle. And ticks can feed on mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians. Most ticks prefer to have different hosts, different animals at every stage of their life. And the life cycle uh, lasts about two years. And during that time, we mentioned about the egg larva and infant adult, um, that blood meal uh, has to happen uh, for them to live on. And when we talk about males, mam uh, mammals, I'm sorry, birds, reptiles, and amphibians, knowing that we are now being able to identify even 40 species of birds that, can uh, that carry Lyme and tick-borne diseases. And how do they know their host? Well, they're, um, they're, they're pretty um, smart. <laughs> what they do is they can actually detect animals' breath and body odors. They can sense body heat, moisture, and even vibrations. Some species can even recognize a shadow. Um, and what we find, the word that's a buzzword now is uh, questing, searching. Ticks know how to search. They know the paths at which the hosts are going to be uh, walking on, uh, such as humans. And uh, when they can latch on, because we know they can't jump and they can't fly, they will latch on. And they actually secrete a substance like cement. And even when they do that, you don't even feel it. So while questing ticks hold on to you, and then within hours and even days, they are progressively getting their uh, Lyme disease component uh, started. And to, uh, to really say, what should we do with this, uh, as, uh, as anybody should do, is that when they're going outside, make sure they're equipped with uh, long sleeves, uh, shirts, pants, that they have repellents, DEET, and that they also wear light colors. I guess ticks uh, don't like uh, the light colors as well as they want the dark. And then in essence, after you come back in, it's really important to check yourself and you check your family. 
because here is the first line of prevention of the spread of Lyme disease. And in the next slide is the uh, another chart that really shows you how warmer and shorter winters mean increase in tick population. Uh, we're seeing that over the last few years. We see how the climate change has made such an impact on the growth and expansion of Lyme disease. On the next is just a similar graph. We don't have to look at that. It's similar to the last, but I have to ask myself, and I know people ask themselves, so, you know, is it Lyme or is it COVID-19? Tick-borne diseases and COVID uh, share similar symptoms. As we ask the question, is it Lyme or flu in the summer? Again, flu symptoms uh, is seasonal, it's summer, uh, but not in the summer. And uh, still, now there is discussion about flu in the summer, but we still have to know and ask ourselves, are these the symptoms we should expect in flu or in Lyme or in both? And I'm mentioning this slide. This is a new, a new slide to put up here, and it's the, on the biofilm. The biofilm is something that is uh, seen in all research. I guess that's the buzzword as well, because the research, what we find with Lyme, and especially with a certain type of Lyme disease, which is the Lyme neuroboreosis, uh, which hurt, actually hits the central nervous system, is probably the most dangerous manifestation of Lyme disease. And what it does is the spirochetes of Lyme, which is Borrelia, Borgdorferi, that typical Lyme species has the spirochetes and has the way of forming a biofilm, a shield. And that shield prevents our immune system to even recognize, as it does even the biofilm that is produced may also evade the antibiotics that we have ordered when we do an early diagnosis and treatment pattern. So the biofilm is, uh, it may explain a low rate of Borrelia detection in the blood of infected individuals, as well as the ability of the spirochetes um, to just keep hiding. Uh, our hope is that we can really do a good job in diagnosing the biofilm. Uh, I'm sorry, not the biofilm, but that we diagnose uh, early Lyme disease. And uh, a treatment early can reduce in such an extent of chronic and debilitating clinical outcomes. On the next slide, just a graph. Here in a graph that I like, it's a geographic distribution of the LD uh, vectors. And uh, we know that the challenges of surveillance and monitoring of Lyme disease in all state can be a challenge because of the low funds, labor force, education, even for clinicians and the public. The prevalence of all tick-borne diseases has also jumped uh, double significantly in the past uh, few years with other species anaplasmosis, spotted uh, uh, fever. So there is tolemia, there's many. The common denominator, however, from state to state is a surveillance of Lyme-infected ticks. When in other states, they test everything, the infected and the non-infected tick. Other states are specifically for the Lyme-infected tick. 
So check in with your uh, departments, agriculture department, testing centers, and find out what do they test? How do they identify that text? The goal of Lyme disease surveillance is not just to capture every case, but to systemically gather and analyze public health data in a way that enables public health officials to look for trends and to take needed action to reduce the um, disease and improve the public. Um, again, we also look at the environmental. Environmental factors in different geog uh, geographic regions play a huge role. Um, and also, I just meant to say in closing, it's not just the ticks migrating with birds and mice, uh, it's people who have to move and they move um, because we had deforested uh, environments. So that was previously wooded uh, is not, and we're pushing more people into the ticks uh, habitat. On the next slide, and that would be, we would uh, look at the um, importance of knowing and explaining the incubation period of Lyme uh, disease and also the, uh, the tick in terms of when it bites, what, what happens in that incubation period? The symptoms are very much like flu symptoms, as we mentioned. And then with time, could be days, hours, we find that it goes to a disseminated stage where now organs are being affected, whether it's muscular and well, it's uh, cardiac and neurological. And manifestations in these areas are important because some of, uh, some of them are, uh, are, are not good and they can be um, causing serious chronic stages of illness and even death. We have to pay attention to that. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about that in this slide presentation. Other, this is just an example of what we use as a tool to uh, teach um, about the, uh, the invasion of the, of the Lyme and how much it works on um, the organs uh, in the parts of our body. On the next slide, we're talking about Lyme disease symptoms are early and chronic. And what may be early as being fatigue or flu-like uh, reactions, what we find is with the chronic, we pick up a little bit more information, actually not a little bit, a lot of information. Why are we seeing more depression, 62%? Why are we seeing more heart-related symptoms? Uh, why are we seeing more um, sleep issues going on? So what we do is as clinicians, we try to really understand that early and chronic Lyme symptology. And then the other slide is here from CDC, and it's a recommended medication therapy uh, for children and adults, the most updated, and that is your for reference. We also know that um, the CDC does not PR uh, anything on the alternative treatment modalities, I'm hoping that we're going to see that change. And it's all up to us to bring that to CDC's attention. And then the next slide is about Lyme and uh, in the co-infections chart, a very important one, because various species of ticks carry Borrelia burgdorferi and other pathogens. One tick can carry more than just one pathogen. And that's what researchers are dealing with in trying to understand uh, 
would that be contributory to the chronicity factor of Lyme disease? We don't know, but that is what we're trying to figure out. And as uh, a lot of the epidemiologists are stating here that the most common tick-borne agent is a bacteria that causes Lyme disease. But along with that, there may be other pathogens that are present in the same ticks that transmit that bacteria. So we're doing due diligence on a clinician basis and on research. And then the next is uh, farming communities. Uh, farmers and their livestock are risk at the scene in park uh, in, in what they do for work and also similar to park rangers, police, firemen, and lumbermen. Again, we implore that the farming communities, like any communities, whether it's suburbia, city, we work closely uh, with their surveillance and the understanding of Lyme disease. It's all up to us. And then next is just a simple slide talking about what other things are happening in other parts of the world uh, and how they are focusing on livestock uh, exposure and the incidence of Lyme. And then the next is a slide that I think is probably one of the best uh, interpretations of how complex Lyme can be and how we have to look at the ecosystem. We have to look at how what climate drives with expansion of Lyme, um, health outcomes, and social and behavioral context, which our next speakers will be talking about. And the last slide, to me an important slide, is I look at Lyme disease as a circle of life um, and what it hits, what modalities it reaches out to. Lyme disease is not just a medicine issue. It's not just a research issue. It's a family issue. Um, it's an issue for animals and, and, and of course for humans. But take a look at that. And I think all of you could probably add other circles to that. Thank you. Um, for this time to share, uh, and uh, our other speakers will be covering a lot more as well. And I'm hoping that we'll have some unified efforts in understanding and uh, doing something about this ep epidemic, pandemic that has been here too long. Thank you. Thank you, Alberta. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, I'm Laura. Um, most most of the people that I see are con consist of people that have been dealing with chronic Lyme. Um, so I, I don't work so much with um, some of the more, you know, uh, earlier symptoms. Um, but I'll, I would like to express to you today um, just some of the things uh, with the neurologic and the emotional and the mood um, for those who are dealing with Lyme. Um, go ahead with the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so we're dealing with mood and mental disorders based on, for undiagnosed Lyme. So this, this is actually a really huge subject, uh, but we'll keep it pretty brief. Um, Dr. Jane Mark actually said, uh, probably all of you have seen a Lyme patient, you just don't know it. Um, one of my colleagues and, uh, and good friends who I've been learning a great deal about uh, recently shared with me that there were, he, he's a physician of over 40 years, and he, he recently shared that um, it's very, very likely that some of his patients who were dealing with, um, with symptoms that just didn't seem to get better, um, no matter what they did, it didn't matter the medication, uh, it just seemed that their cases were, were never really quite improving. Uh, they may improve a little bit, but then uh, they, would, they would just regress. Um, and he, he now, in hindsight, knowing everything he also knows now about Lyme after having chronic Lyme for many years, 
and suffering with that. Uh, he relates that probably there were many um, who had Lyme and he didn't realize it. So um, go ahead for the next slide, please. So this is important um, to kind of at least have an understanding that, that Lyme could be presenting itself and we may not recognize it as Lyme. Uh, Lyme can be uh, present neurologic, uh, cognitive and neuropsychiatrically. So some of these um, disorders that may arise that you may, may find within yourself, your family, or even your patients, um, anxiety disorders, sudden anxiety disorders, um, OCD, intrusive thoughts, um, general, generalized um, anxiety, uh, panic attacks, uh, PTSD. I'm not going to go through the whole list and it's not exhaustive. Um, we have, you know, bipolar, uh, ADD is huge for children who are suddenly having an onset of, of Lyme that shows up. Um, forgetting simple tasks, uh, sleep disorders, uh, especially mid uh, nocturnal awakenings and insomnia. Uh, even eating disorders can be um, a symptom. Lowered frustration th threshold. Um, definitely intrusive suicidal thoughts. This is for many, many reasons. Um, one of which being that a lot of Lyme, um, people who are dealing with Lyme often feel uh, not only isolated, but they also feel like uh, they are not being heard, they're not being understood. And so that therefore um, creates even more of a sensation of isolation. Uh, there's also depression. Um, so. I've provided this list for you. It, it did come from Dr. Gransfield. He did a huge amount of, of work um, psychologically with Lyme patients. And he's a wonderful resource for all of you out there who want to learn more about that. Um, but I'm offering this to you so that you can um, really get kind of an understanding of some of these psychological issues that may be coming up for people. Um, it is not, like I said, it's not exhaustive. Um, go ahead with the next slide, please. So how secondary co-infections in chronic Lyme can sometimes be expressed? Um, this is an example of what your patients, your clients, your friends, or even you may be experiencing. So these are some of the things that you may hear um, somebody say, uh, something is just wrong with me. I don't feel right. I don't feel like myself. Um, things that have never bothered me before are suddenly bothering me now. Um, I feel like nobody really understands me. That's a big, big thing. Um, especially like with processing, they'll find that the, the processing is a lot slower. So uh, it may take somebody um, several times to just read one paragraph and they still don't remember what, what they read. Um, the processing really slows down quite a bit, which in turn, of course, causes more frustration. Um, they feel like they're losing my, their mind, literally. Um, their mind is always going, so they're really not catching a break very, very much on sleep. So certainly somebody who's, who's coming in that's exhausted, uh, chronic fatigue um, is, is big. Um, feeling easily irritated. Um, would be another thing that they may express. So there's just a basic list there of, of, of things that people may be coming in and saying. And I'm offering this as a example of maybe putting some of these questions in a health history or possibly if you have um, someone who is not doing well with treatment or not seeming to improve with treatment, 
um, or even who is coming up with some basic symptoms, um, but they are testing negative for Lyme. This, this is probably something that you may want to incorporate into um, your questions for, for, for this population. Uh, next slide, please. Also a big thing to, to know that Lyme does not discriminate in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Lyme can be transmitted congenitally, and um, although research is pending, it's very possible that Lyme may be tr transmitted through breast milk. I know that there's some research going on right now. Um, I don't have the, uh, the results on that yet, but I know that they are really looking into that um, to see if it can be transmitted through, through breast milk. Um, oftentimes, emotional and cognitive conditions may be the only symptoms that uh, the child or the infant may be presenting, um, especially like developmental. Um, we have autism and, and again, ABD. But for, for very young children, um, just their, their moods, um, their emotions, what they're, they're able to do, uh, their processing, um, these could all be potential signs that could be misdiagnosed as autism um, or, or other things for sure. So def definitely just something to, to look at. Um, go ahead with the next slide, please. This slide shows the information in the brain um, and uh, the neurological disruptions are gonna be things like tremors, um, burning or stabbing sensations, extreme fatigue. I can't stress that enough because the body literally is under stress the entire time. It really just does not get a break. No matter where the syrocutes are, um, it, you really don't get much of a break with this, with lines. Uh, weakness and peripheral neuropathy, um, partial paralysis, Bell's palsy, um, that's becoming more common for clinicians to, to kind of look at Lyme, um, but still that's something to be aware of. Uh, numbness in the body, um, poor balance due to dizziness, difficulty walking and motion sickness, um, and some lightheadedness and wooziness. Uh, next slide, please. And this is um, just a quick graph of the timeline. Um, again, I would like to, you know, like even going further with chronic Lyme, it can, it can go years be before it's even considered. Um, hopefully that changes because it's really important to catch it as early as possible. Um, but here you can see um, with the, uh, the early neurologic disease, and then the late neurologic disease um, and the muscular um, skeletal disease. Next slide, please. Thank you. So there's your credits. Um, thank you everyone for listening to me. I am happy to talk with anybody uh, more about any of this and um, please definitely reach out and um, I will go ahead with Adina. Mm. Thank you, Laura. Hello, everyone. Thank you for attending. Uh, today, I'll be discussing the complexities of uh, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and everything that that terminology may encompass. It is important to recognize that not all cases of persisting symptoms are the result of treatment failure with Lyme disease or persistent infection. In some cases, persistent symptoms may be the result of secondary diseases triggered by Lyme disease. It is also worth differentiating between secondary diseases that have a clear treatment protocol 
with a potential resolution and permanent damage that may have been the cause of the bacterial infection. Autoimmunity is a factor that may explain some cases of persistent symptoms. This has been most clearly demonstrated in the case of Lyme arthritis, but also has the likely explanation of a broad range of neuro neurological manifestations. So we can begin our discussion with refractory Lyme arthritis. The most typical presentation of this is a persistent swelling of a, of a knee joint. Other large joints may also be involved, but the knee is by far the most common. The North American strains of Borrelia burgdorferi have been observed to be far more arthritogenic than their European counterparts. There are several variants in particular that have been identified as more likely to result in severe disease, um, immune uh, dysregulation, and also ultimately persisting arthritic symptoms. So it's worth noting that the first step with unresolved arthritic symptoms for a previously treated patient is to attempt retreatment. In mild cases, retreatment is recommended with oral antibiotics and in moderate to severe cases with IV antibiotics. This protocol acknowledges actually that treatment failure can occur uh, with standard courses of anti oral antibiotics. The next step is the recommended treatment, um, excuse me, in the recommended treatment of refractory Lyme arthritis is the use of disease modifying anti rheumatic drugs. So recent research has shown that immunological details of Lyme arthritis um, includes excess production of interferon gamma and a deficiency of interleukin 10. Treatment with disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs can last anywhere from six months to five years in order to see the desired improvement. The next most common set of persistent symptoms experienced by Lyme patients are indicative of neurological involvement. IV antibiotics are also recommended as the next treatment step in the case of moderate or severe neurological Lyme disease where oral antibiotics have failed. In some cases where there is limited improvement from IV treatment, it may indicate a post-infective process. This neurological condition may be due to a similar type of immune dysregulation as was described for refractory Lyme arthritis. There has been some supported um, research about the role of glial uh, cells and astrocytes in some cases of neurological Lyme disease. Neurological involvement can manifest in a broad array of nonspecific symptoms. This depends on the neurological system being affected and the extent of damage within that particular system. Sensory nerve involvement leads to neuropathy or loss of feeling. And if other sensory systems are affected, it can result in loss of hearing, tinnitus, or olfactory dysfunction. When the motor nerves are affected, there can be loss of mobility to a varying extent, uh, potentially as severe as CIDP. When the autonomic nervous system is affected by Lyme disease, 
the systemic damage presents as some form of dysautonomia. Perhaps the most common and mildest form of autonomic dysfunction that has been associated with Lyme is um, most familiar to everyone called POTS. But dysregulation of blood pressure and heart rhythm stemming from Lyme disease need not be postural at all. Uh, dysautonomia can also affect other systems such as dysfunction in the gastrointestinal tract resulting in gastroparesis. The challenge in diagnosing such patients is linking those systems with autonomic nerve damage from a Lyme infection. Small fiber neuropathy is a specific condition that has been documented as a source of persisting symptoms in patients that have had Lyme disease. Besides the evidence of small fiber nerve damage that can be inferred from a range of autonomic function tests, the degree of nerve damage can be objectively determined by performing a skin biopsy. Once a patient has been diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy, they can be treated with IVIG therapy in order to possibly halt and reverse the damage of those small fiber nerves. A recent study at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston demonstrated both the presence of small fiber damage in the subset of Lyme disease patients and the application of IVIG therapy as a potential effective treatment. So um, on my last slide here, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit uh, from discussing the damage and secondary diseases that can be triggered uh, by the Borrelia infectious agent um, to discussing prevention with patients. Patients should be educated on tick bite prevention, especially if they are in the agricultural workforce. If all occurrences of tick-borne disease can be resolved by a simple course of antibiotics, we would not have a public health problem associated with Lyme disease. But with the risks of misdiagnosis and also the long-term effects of persisting and secondary diseases, prevention becomes an essential tool for reducing the public health burden. Besides permethrin-treated clothing while working outdoors and also performing daily tick checks, we also recommend discussing with patients that they always test any attached tick so they know what pathogens might have been transmitted. If a patient comes in with a tick, do not discard the tick. Inform the patient about the availability and importance of tick testing and the available tick testing labs in your state. Thank you and I will pass it now on to Jan. Hello, um, nice to be here. I'll be discussing various challenges to diagnosis. Um, a few technical subjects here. Next slide, please. My first topic is the issue of tick attachment times because often we have people come in and they have a tick attached for some amount of time and the idea of whether they got a disease or not is based on this notion of a tick attachment time. This subject is rather complicated and has no definite answers. Most of what we know has been determined with animal models and in laboratory settings. 
And the general belief that it takes from 24 to 36 hours to transmit Lyme disease can be quite problematic. Next slide. The 36 hour mark in these studies reflects 100% probability of transmission. Some subset of cases in those studies were transmitted faster. So in essence, we're dealing with an increasing probability. The theory in general is that transmission takes time because the bacteria lives in the tick's midgut. And once the tick attaches, it takes time for the bacteria to travel from the midgut into the bloodstream of the host. But there can be a variety of confounding factors. For example, the bacteria might already be in the tick's salivary glands at the time of attachment if the tick had been previously feeding on another host and was interrupted. Another theory holds that the bacteria actually starts migrating due to temperature priming once a tick is searching for a blood meal along a host because they are the ambient body temperature of the host leads to that, which may result in a shorter attachment time leading to transmission. Next slide, please. So just to do an epidemiological reality check. The CDC tells us every year there's 500,000 cases of Lyme diagnosed based on laboratory data and insurance claims. But when we look at people coming into ER visits with ticks attached or even noting tick bites themselves, there's a much lower number. So what is wrong with that picture? Either there's a lot of people missing a lot of tick bites that attach for the full 24 to 36 hours, or a lot of people having shorter tick attachment times that they you know, miss for the short time that it is attached, but getting Lyme transmitted then. Either conclusion is a serious implication for clinical practice, because if a patient shows up with a tick that was attached for a short amount of time, or they show up with no tick at all, uh, but think they might have gotten a bite for some amount of time, you can't assume that Lyme failed to transmit based on this 24 to 36 hour window. Um, you have to look at the epidemiological reality of all these hit cases happening all the time in the country. Next slide, please. With regard to co-infections and other tick diseases, transmission times are always faster. Lyme is the slowest moving. The Wasson virus can take as little as 15 minutes. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is not a part of the deer tick cone fiction set, but has gotten a recent reassessment of its transmission time can be anywhere between four and 12 hours. And depending on how long the tick attached will also determine the severity of the infection. Other Lyme co-infections like anaplasmosis and babesiosis take 12 hours and 24 hours respectively. For all of these, the times are established also in animal models and reflect probabilistic transmission up to the 100% mark. Next slide. The major point of having the shorter transmission times though is that if a patient comes in with Lyme, and a tick had multiple pathogens, that patient is 100% guaranteed to be co-infected. So the prevalence of patients with co-infections is going to be similar to the prevalence of co-infected ticks in a given region. 
And we have tick drag studies all over the country, often showing us the rate of co-infection in these ticks. Um, depending on the region, this runs anywhere between five to 15% on average. Um, and also the combination of diseases varies by region. So it's good to look up tick drag studies in your particular area. But we should really expect um, patients to come in and some percentage of those patients to present with co-infections and require treatment and testing for those. Next slide, please. My next subject is the issue of rashes. According to the CDC's official data for reportable cases, 70% of all those cases present with a rash. The CDC tabulates only about 50,000 cases a year, but they estimate 500,000 cases. So how good is the CDC's estimate of rash numbers? Since it's so much easier to diagnose a case that has a definitive rash, that represents an upper bound. The real reality of rash incidents might be as low as 7%, but could be anywhere between that 7% and 70% bound uh, between reportable and estimated cases. Next slide, please. What we do know is that the genetics of the bacteria make a huge difference. Whether it's the species or particular strains of a given species, the genetic variation in the bacteria determines the presentation of a rash or not. A great study about this is available from Europe, where even the species that most often involve dermatological manifestation, some strains of that species do not present with a rash. And certainly for the neurological strains, rash frequency is lower. We also see similar variation regionally in the United States. So a particular state such as Maine, for example, the local CDC only reports a 40 to 50% rate of rash presentation in definitively diagnosed reportable cases. So our working hypothesis is in the US, there's a similar genetic variation that has yet to be studied to prove this point. But don't assume patients without a rash are not infected. Next slide, please. Shape and presentation are also quite variable. We often see uh, the bullseye rash as a classic example of what the rash can be but it only occurs in a subset of cases to see both the expanding rash and the central clearing area. Rashes can be of different shapes without a central clearing area. They don't need to be circular. Sometimes they can be disseminated and appear in multiple places rather than a single spot. And on darker skin, rashes may appear just like bruises. They're much harder to distinguish from the bullseye pattern. Uh, something that could be important for a subset of the agricultural workforce. Next slide, please. My next major subject is the details of the diagnostic tests and what is their appropriate use. The CDC has for years emphasized that the tests are for surveillance purposes and not for clinical diagnosis. The tests are based on a pretty old technology that was developed in the 1960s and 1970s and reflect this indirect measure of antibodies. 
PCR would be a much more superior technology that we use for other infections. But infection with Borrelia doesn't produce a high enough load in serum to lead to commercially viable PCR testing. So PCR, while often used in academic settings uh, for Lyme disease, is not really available as a definitive and reliable test either. Next slide. So why are the ELISA and Western blot tests that are based on antibodies so poor uh, as diagnostic tests for Lyme disease? The first problem is sensitivity in early disease. It can take four to six weeks to develop the appropriate antibodies to show up on these tests. Um, and so a lot of patients that are tested early simply won't get a positive result. The problem, of course, is Lyme is much easier to treat at this early stage. And as the disease disseminates, you become more susceptible to these complicated cases with harder treatment. So in essence, relying on serological tests puts the population at risk for developing disseminated disease, um, especially in cases where there's no tick present or rash present. These things may get overlooked and disseminated disease will happen. Next slide, please. Another problem with the sensitivity and the specificity of the tests is that when these tests were designed and validated, there was a circular reasoning in the test validation. So the trials only recruited people that presented with an EM rash, which we saw, uh, you know, the CDC's data on that is probably not correct. It reflects an undercount. In more recent studies where there are attempts to revalidate some of the historical tests using either PCR in an academic setting, culture, or even a technique called xenodiagnosis, and the Lyme cases are established in that way and then compared to the result of serological tests, the sensitivity and specificity is much less than the initial validation trials. Next slide, please. One thing we know that's a problem with the test and could be a problem for getting diagnosed with Lyme disease in large parts of the country is the geographic sensitivity of the tests. The tests were designed around the B31 strain of the Borrelia bacteria that was isolated in Shelter Island, New York. Their sensitivity is tuned to that bacteria. And the further you get away from New York, the worse the tests get in picking up Lyme disease. We've seen this in studies of the same type of the, the same test in the Canadian provinces. And we've also seen it more dramatically in the European cases where the tests had to be redesigned completely to pick up the local Borrelia species and strains in European countries. Next slide, please. One final point on the problem with testing reflects a genetic variation probably in the host population, the people that are infected, and maybe a genetic variation in the bacteria itself. And this is lack of seroconversion. Some percent of people never produce antibodies, maybe because the bacteria shuts down their immune response or dysregulates it in some way, maybe because they have some genetic predisposition. This has been documented in studies of this, of patients that do pre, uh, present with an EM rash, 
which is definitively the bacteria spreading under their skin, but 10% or so of those patients never seroconvert, whether they are treated with antibiotics or not. So antibody testing is not at all useful for detecting this set of patients, and they are most likely to remain undiagnosed and misdiagnosed in the long term. Next slide, please. So uh, a final comment on preventive screening. Yes, the antibody tests are imperfect. They will only catch a subset of diseases, but that is still better than nothing. And in some cases we would recommend preventive screening, for example, by obstetricians, given that congenital transmission can occur for both Lyme disease, Babesia, uh, even in subclinical presentations. So it is ideal to test the mother before uh, pregnancy and then determine if there is a risk and a need for treatment and monitoring. And this is probably more the case for agricultural populations and others that are at high risk or endemic areas, uh, given the complications this can produce both during pregnancy and uh, in the baby after birth. Next slide. And that is everything for me. I will hand it over to Q&A. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the AgriSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. You can learn more about the AgriSafe Network at agrisafe.org, and be sure to check out the Learning Lab and all of the excellent resources available on the site. You can also find us on Facebook or contact us anytime at info at agrisafe.org.